Welcome to God's Messenger Lighthouse Podcast. This is your host, Brother Scott Messenger, bringing you Chapter 10 from God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew with John and Elizabeth Sherl. Chapter 10, Lanterns in the Dark. Just ahead was the Yugoslav border. For the first time in my life, I was about to enter a communist country on my own instead of in a group invited and sponsored by the government. I stopped the little VW on the outskirts of the tiny Australian village and took shock. The Yugoslav government in 1957 permitted visitors to bring in only articles for their personal use. Anything new or anything in quantity was suspect because of the black market thriving all over the country. Printed material especially was liable to be confiscated at the border, no matter how small the quantity, because coming from out of the country, it was regarded as foreign propaganda. Now here I was with car and luggage literally bulging with tracts, Bibles, and portions of Bibles. How was I going, how was I to get them past the border guard? And so, for the first of many times, I said the prayer of God's smuggler, Lord, in my luggage I have scripture that I want to take to your children across this border. When you were on earth, you made blind eyes see. Now I pray, make seeing eyes blind. Do not let the guards see those things. You do not want them to see. And so, armed with this prayer, I started the motor and drove up to the barrier. The two guards appeared both startled and pleased to see me. I wondered how much business came their way. From the way they stared at my passport, it might have been the first Dutch one they had ever seen. There were just a few formalities to attend to. They assured me in German, and I could be on my way. One of the guards began poking around in my camping gear. In the corners and folds of my sleeping bag and tent were boxes of tracts. Lord, make those seeing eyes blind. Do you have anything to declare? Well, I have my money and a wristwatch and a camera. The other guard was looking inside the VW. He asked me to take out a suitcase. I knew that there were tracts scattered through my clothing. Of course, sir, I said. I pulled the front seat forward and dragged the suitcase out. I placed it on the ground and opened the lid. The guard lifted the shirts that lay on top beneath them, and now in plain sight was a pile of tracts in different in two different Yugoslavian languages, Croatian and Slavene. How was God going to handle this situation? It seems dry for that this time of year, I said to one another guard, the other guard, and without looking at the fellow who was inspecting the suitcase, I fell into a conversation about the weather. I told him about my own homeland and how it was always wet on the polders. Finally, when I could stand the suspense no longer, I looked behind me. The first guard wasn't even glancing at the suitcase. He was listening to our conversation. When I turned around, he caught himself and looked up. Well then, do you have anything else to declare? Only small things, I said. 
the tracks were small after that. After all, we won't bother with them, said the guard. Uh, he nodded to me that I could close the suitcase and, with a little salute, handed me back my passport. My first stop was Zagreb. I had been given the name of a Christian leader there, whose, whom I shall call Jamil. The name had come from the Dutch Bible Society, which listed him as a man who occasionally ordered Bibles in quantity. However, they had not heard from him since Tito had become premier in 1945. I hardly dared hope that he would still be living at the same address, but with no other choice, I had written a carefully worded letter stating that toward the end of March a Dutchman might visit his country, and now I was driving into Zagreb looking for his address. To underline the wonders of that first Christian contact in Yugoslavia, I shall have to tell what happened to my letter, even though, of course, I did not know the whole story until later. It had been delivered to the address all right, but Jamal had long since moved. The new tenant did not know his whereabouts and returned the letter to the post office. There it was held up for two weeks while a search was made for Jamal's new address. On the very day I entered Yugoslavia, it was finally delivered. Jamal read it, puzzled. Who was this mysterious Dutchman? Was it safe to try contacting him? With nothing better than a vague feeling that he should do something, Jamal boarded a tram and went to his old apartment house. But then what? Jamal stood on the sidewalk, wondering how to proceed. Had the Dutchman already arrived and gone about asking for a certain Jamal? Did he dare go to the new tenant with the suspicious story that someday an unknown Dutchman might call asking for him? What on earth should he do? And it was at that moment that I pulled up to the curb and stopped my car. I stepped out not more than two feet away from Jamal, who of course recognized me at once from my license plates. He seized my hands, and we put our stories together. Jamal was overjoyed at having a foreign Christian in his country. He repeated the theme I had heard first in Poland, that my being there meant everything. Uh, they felt so isolated, so alone. Of course, he would help me set up contacts with the believers in his country. He knew just the man to translate for me. So a few days later, with a young engineering student named Nicola as my guide and interpreter, I set off in my blue Volkswagen to bring greetings to the Yugoslavian Christians. On this first car trip behind the Iron Curtain, I discovered that I had energy I never dreamed of. My visa was good for 50 days. For seven straight weeks, I preached, taught, encouraged, distributed scripture. I held more than 80 meetings during those 50 days, speaking as many as six times on a Sunday. I preached in large cities, hamlets, uh, isolated farms. I spoke openly in the north, covertly in the south, 
where communist influence was strongest, at first glimpse, it did not seem to me that the church in Yugoslavia was under any particular persecution. I had to register with the police when I moved into a, into a new district, but I was free to visit believers even in their homes. Churches operated openly. After a while, I abandoned the pretext of bringing greetings and simply began to preach. No one objected, except for certain restricted areas, mostly along the borders. I was free to travel wherever I chose within the country, with no government guides to check on my activities. This amounted to a real kind of freedom, much more than I had expected. But bit by bit, as I got to know Yugoslavia better, I became aware of the slow wearing down process uh, the government was asserting on Christians. The effort seemed to be centered on the children. Leave the old folks alone, but wean the young people away from the church. One of the first churches Nicola and I visited was a Roman Catholic one in a small village not far from Zagreb. I noticed that there was not a single person under 20 in the entire congregation, and I asked Nicola about it. In answer, he introduced me to a peasant woman who had a 10-year-old son. Tell Brother Andrew why Joseph is not here, said Nicola. Why is my Joseph not with me? she asked. Her voice was bitter. Because I am a peasant woman with no education, the teacher tells my son there is no God. The government tells my son there is no God. They say to my Joseph, maybe your mama tells you differently, but we know better, don't we? You must remember that mama has no education. We will humor her, so my Joseph is not with me. I am being humored. A few days later, in another town, we were visiting a Christian family when I saw a little girl playing in the dust outside the house in the middle of the day. Why isn't she in school? I asked Nicola. From the mother, he learned the story. Mar Marta was accustomed to saying grace before meals at home. When it came time for the school lunch, Marta had given thanks aloud, as she always did, without even thinking about it. The teacher had been angry. Who had supplied this food? God or the people through their own good government? That was a wicked thing to say, Marta. You will f fill the other children's minds with nonsense. But the next day, so deeply was the habit ingrained that Marta did it again, and for this she has had been expelled. It was in Macedonia, however, that we encountered the first signs of real fear on the part of churchgoers. The poorest of Yugoslavia's six states, Macedonia, is also the area where the party is strongest. Our first speaking date in this part of the country was scheduled for 10 o'clock in the morning. When we reached the church, however, not a soul was there. I can't understand it, Nicholas said, getting out the letter we had received from the pastor. I'm sure this is the right place. At eleven, we decided it was useless to wait any longer. We went outside to where we had parked the car. Just as we were getting in, one of the villagers strolled past, 
paused long enough to shake my hand warmly, wished me Godspeed, and wandered on. I was just turning again to open the door of the car when another villager ambled past, and the scene was repeated. For forty-five minutes that morning, the entire village just happened to be out for a stroll, and as luck would have it, they all happened to pass the visiting preacher's automobile so that they could meet him and shake his hand. Even Nicola was puzzled as to how to interpret this. A few days later, we had an evening meeting scheduled in another town in Macedonia. The pastor invited us to dinner before the service at eight. At five minutes before eight, I suggested to the pastor that we start for the church. No, he said, looking outside. It is not yet time. At 8.15, I brought the subject up again. Don't you think people will be waiting? No, the time is not yet. Again, I noticed he looked outside before he answered. At 8.30, the pastor finally went to the window, peered out, and nodded. Now we can go, he said. The people won't come to church, you know, until it gets dark. It isn't that we are doing anything illegal, but... Well, it pays to be cautious. And then I saw the sight I was to become so familiar with all over Macedonia. From the darkened countryside, kerosene lamps began to appear. The peasants came slowly across the fields in twos and threes, never more, each man carrying a lamp. Then came the townspeople from the little mud houses that lined the only road, lanterns low to that their faces were in shadow. No one seemed to mind being recognized once he was inside the church. After all, everyone there was taking the same risk. The lamps were hung on hooks along the side of the room so that there was a warm and pleasant glow for the meeting. I spoke on Nicodemus, coming late in the night to make inquiries of Christ. He too, I said, had felt it had visible to seek the Lord under cover of darkness. It didn't matter. Time and place would always dictate how we made our first steps to God, toward God. More than 200 persons had come that night to hear the foreigner speak. Eighty-five of them used the occasion to commit their lives anew to the Christian way, even when that way led for, led for the time being through darkness. It was in another village in Macedonia that we had our only serious encounter with the police. I had told Nicola that I wanted to visit Christians in both the large cities and the small towns. Nasakai was a small town, all right. Just getting there was an undertaking. We had picked up a second guide to steer us through Macedonia. Uh, which Nicola knew scarcely at all, a wonderful Christian whom everyone called Little Uncle. Now Uncle pointed to two tracks across the field and assured us that this was the road to Nasake. The tracks got fainter and the ruts deeper until the undercarriage of the car was scraping the soft earth, and at last we found ourselves driving across a freshly plowed field. So much for your road, I said. How much farther, uncle? But we're here, he said, pointing to a clump of trees in the distance. 
So we got out of the car and tramped across the field until we got to the little collection of mud huts called Nasakai. There was supposed to be a church here, but we saw no tra trace of one. Nicola made inquiries and learned that there was, in fact, a church in the village, but it had only one member. She was the widow, Anna, who had converted her home into a church, to which no one came. We went to visit Anna. She was amazed that a missionary had come to her little village. But I should not be surprised, she corrected herself. Have I not been praying for help? Anna showed us her church. It was forbidden to hold religious services in a private home, so Anna had simply closed off one room and put a sign on it reading Multivin Dum Prayer House. When she put up the sign, there were raised eyebrows among the village's few party members, but no one really objected. After all, Anna was quite alone in this silly superstition of hers, and she was harming nobody. Now, however, a preacher was here. Word flew from cottage to cottage. Almost no one in the village had ever laid eyes on anyone from outside Macedonia, let alone from a foreign country. Whether this was the appeal, or whether there were more religious reasons, I do not know. But that evening, after dark, it was as if the fields were alive with glowworms, weaving and blinking their way across the fields to Anna's house. We began by teaching them a hymn, and then we told them the gospel story, for Anna assured us that the younger generation had never heard it. We were singing a second hymn, when suddenly there was a loud pounding on the door. Everyone stopped singing. Anna opened the door, and there stood two uniformed police. They walked to the front of the room. For a long time, they simply stood there, running their eyes over the congregation. Then they went to one side of the room to get a better look at faces. Finally, they took out their notebooks and began writing down names. When they had finished, they asked a few questions about Nicola and me and then left as abruptly as they had come. But the meeting was not the same after that. Several villagers went home at once. Those who stayed sang with no enthusiasm. When the time came for an altar call, I was surprised that anyone would raise his hand, and yet several did. You have seen tonight what following Christ must might mean, I said. Are you sure you want to become his men? And still a few insisted. So a little church was born that evening. But it never had a chance to grow. Nicola wrote me a year later that it had been stamped out by the government for helping us. Little uncle was deported from the country. He is now living in California in the United States. Anna's Multivin Dom was closed down. As for himself, Nicola wrote, he had been summoned to court in Zagreb to account for his part in that the evening. He had been reprim uh, reprimanded by the judge and fined the equivalent of $50, but nothing worse. He believed the fact that he was a student had saved him from harsher treatment. Why the government chose this particular isolated church to attack while 
It left others alone. Neither Nicola nor I have ever understood. The roads in Yugoslavia were extraordinarily hard on cars. When we weren't climbing fierce mountain trails, we were fording streams at the bottom of steep valleys. But the worst threat to the little VW was the dust. Dust lay over the unpaved roads like a shroud. It sifted, sifted in us, on, in on us, even through the closed windows, and I hated to think what it was doing to the engine. Every morning, in our quiet time, Nicola and I would include a prayer for the car. Lord, we don't have either time or money for repairs on the car, so will you please keep it running? One of the peculiarities of travel in Yugoslavia in 1957 was the friendly road stoppings that took place. Cars, especially foreign cars, were still such a rarity that when two drivers passed each other, they almost always stopped to exchange a few words about road conditions, weather, gasoline supplies, bridges. One day, we were dusting along a mountain road when up ahead, we spotted a small truck coming toward us. As it pulled alongside, we also stopped. Hello, said the driver. I believe I know who you are. You're the Dutch missionary who is going to preach in Turna tonight. That's right. And this is the miracle car? The miracle car? I mean, the car that you pray for every morning? Each morning? I had to laugh. I had mentioned the prayer in a previous meeting. The word had obviously gone on ahead. Yes, I admitted, this is the car. Mind if I take a look at her? I'm a mechanic. I'd appreciate it. I had put gasoline in that engine, and that was literally all since I had crossed the border. The mechanic went around to the rear and lifted the hood over the motor. For a long time, he stood there, just staring. Brother Andrew, he said at last, I have just become a believer. It is mechanically impossible for this engine to run. Look, the air filter, the car carburetor, the sparks. No, I'm sorry, this car cannot run. And yet it's taken us thousands of miles. The mechanic only shook his head. Brother, he said, would you permit me to clean your engine for you and give you a change of oil? It hurts me to see you abuse a mir miracle. Gratefully, we followed the man to his village a few miles from Tirna. We pulled behind him into a little courtyard filled with pigs and uh, geese. That night, while we preached, he took the engine apart, cleaned it piece by piece, changed the oil, and by the time we were ready to leave the next morning, presented us with a grinning new automobile. God had answered our prayer. We drove into Belgrade. On the 1st of May, 1957, May Day, the High Holy Day of commu commu uh, Communism, uh, there wasn't a bed or a seat in a restaurant to be found in the entire city. Nicola and I would have slept in the car that night if the pastor of the church at which we were to speak had not taken us into his own home, and it was in this church that we had the experience that has shaped my ministry down uh, to the present moment. Nicola and I stood on the platform facing a crowded room. 
It was so full that we did not even have room to put up the phanograph with which uh, illustrated my stories of the Gospels. Halfway through the service, someone started uh, hammering. The next thing we knew, they had taken a door right off its hinges so that an overflow crowd in the choir room could hear. These were not the solemn-eyed country people I had come to love, but a sophisticated, fairly well-dressed city congregation. Well, after the talk, Nicola and I gave an altar call. We asked that everyone who wanted to commit their life to Christ, or who wanted to reaffirm a previous commitment, raise their hand. Every hand in the room went up. Surely they hadn't understood. I explained again how serious a step this was. I made the conditions of discipleship under a hostile government painfully clear, and then I made a second appeal, this time asking the people to stand. The entire congregation stood. I was astonished. I had never seen such readiness. Carried away by their spirit, I launched into an enthusiastic description of the daily disciplines of prayer and Bible reading that turn newborn children in Christ into mature soldiers in his ranks. I was outlining the plan for Bible study that we had been taught at the missionary training college when I noticed a change had come over the room. For the first time, people in this responsive congregation were not meeting my eyes. They were looking at their hands, the pubacks, anywhere but at me. Puzzled, I turned to the pastor. He too seemed embarrassed as he told me through Nicola, prayer, yes, that we can do each day. I like what you have said about this, but Bible reading? Brother Andrew, most of these people do not have Bibles. I stared at him in disbelief. I had got used to the idea in rural churches, but an educated cosmopolitan Belgrade? I turned to the congregation. How many of you own Bibles? I asked. In the entire room, seven hands, including the pastors, went up. I was stunned. I had long ago passed out the ones I had brought with me. Now, what was I to leave with these people so eager, eager to learn, so needful of guidance in the hard walk they had chosen for themselves against the millions marching the other way? With the pastor, we worked out a system of Bible sharing, a schedule of group study combined with individual use, so many hours on such and such a day for each member. But that same evening, a resolve was born in me, a resolve that has burned brighter with each passing year. That night, I promised God that as often as I could lay my hands on a Bible, I would bring it to these children of his behind the wall that men had built. I, How I would buy the Bibles, how I would get them in, I didn't know. I only knew that I would bring them here to Yugoslavia and to Czechoslovakia and to every other country where God opened the door long enough for me to slip through. Next time, Chapter 11, The Third Prayer.